You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hey, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with uh, Judicial Watch's Weekly Update on social media. Thanks, as always, for joining us this week. I, I say this every week, but there's always a lot going on. Uh, there's a new Supreme Court confirmation battle that I'll talk about. We have uh, new records about China and COVID and abuse of our diplomats that are, are just going to be shocking to you, I would suspect. And some good news also from the Supreme Court in terms of taking on uh, the racism that the left has been promoting in academia uh, and uh Judicial Watch has been part of that case and and part of generally the legal effort to uphold the rule of law in the area of race discrimination in a way uh, that the left absolutely hates. So a lot to talk about in that regard. First up is the big news about the Supreme Court uh, vacancy that has arisen as a result of Justice Stephen Breyer retiring. Uh, It surprised everyone, at least it surprised me. And uh, the left has been pressuring him to go. And it looks like they that pressure worked. It was unprecedented. You know, I've been in Washington longer than I care to admit to. I've never seen anything like it. And you may have missed it if you're a normal person who doesn't follow the leftist narratives like people uh, that people like me follow. Uh, but the left has been pressuring him to retire too old, and he's got to retire. They didn't want him to die in office at the wrong time and not allow, and and I would presume, a radical leftist to replace him. And uh, and how do I suspect it was like almost a forced retirement? Because it became pretty clear in interviews, at least one or two interviews that I saw, that Stephen Breyer had zero interest in retiring. Uh, Yet he did it, and it was obvious he did it. Uh, and he may have done it on his own, but there was, as I said, this insignificant, this significant pressure uh, that uh, raised the question about the uh, the push to have him retire and whether it was a voluntary retirement or one that was, you know, just too much for him to bear in terms of pressure. And so he ended up leaving. Either way, it means that uh, Joe Biden gets to, in theory, make his first appointment to the Supreme Court. But, of course, the left is rising. The extremist left is rising in uh, the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden has promised, and he reiterated that promise, that he was going to only pick a black woman. So here you have the president of the United States promising to engage in racial and sex discrimination in figuring out who to select uh, to be his first Supreme Court nominee. I've never seen anything like it. Now, the left likes to say, oh, look at Ronald Reagan. He said he wanted to appoint a woman. Well, you know, it's a big difference between saying, you know, I'd like to appoint a black woman. I'd like to appoint this ethnic group or I'd like to uh, appoint that gender, which I think, by the way, is ridiculous anyway, either way. And I I was 12 years old when Reagan was in office, so no one asked me what I thought about him uh, desiring to uh, appoint a woman. You know, my view is the key metric ought to be who uh, is, whether someone is capable as a judge and whether they will follow the rules that we expect them to follow under our constitutional system, which is a respect for the Constitution, a willingness to apply the Constitution as written and originally understood, and not to substitute your own personal judgment for what lies. Now, 
that gives you a lot of leeway, if at least if you're someone who's principled. Uh, but we all know what uh, the folks around Joe Biden want. So the same extremist left that browbeat a Supreme Court justice, you can bet is going to demand that uh, President Biden appoint a radical. Now, I don't know enough about the the number of black women who would Joe Biden would be considering to know, well, maybe, you know, maybe they can't find a radical among us, Uh, but they can find a liberal and they can find a liberal who is unlikely to uh, be the type of judge who won't politicize the court, who will respect the Constitution. So in my view, Every senator should oppose that if that's the case, as I believe it's likely to be the case. In addition, you have, the, as I call it, the CRT approach to selecting a Supreme Court justice. So the president of the United States is telling men and or white people or anyone other, any other race they can't apply. For instance, there's a major um, figure on the, on the, I shouldn't say the Supreme Court because it isn't. It's the Court of Appeals here in the District of Columbia. Uh, and um, he's youngish. He's, I think he's chief judge. So he's the chief judge of the second most important court in the land. Because typically this, the appellate court here in D.C. is seen as, seen as a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. And because it's in Washington, D.C., they handle a lot of important cases as it relates to government. And uh, that's where we do most of our business here in Washington, D.C. So we've been before that appellate court more often than I'd like, given the way some of the judges have been ruling. Well, anyway, this judge, Sri Venisanen, I'm sure I'm mangling his name. Well, according to Biden, he's eminently qualified. I mean, in terms of judicial philosophy, I would reject him, but he's eminently qualified. And I'm sure there are other judges like him who are eminently qualified, who the president is going to bar the door to the White House from being considered. And as I suggested earlier, you know, you can signal that you're interested in, quote, diversity. There are all sorts of code words you can use. And like I said, I find it objectionable that we do this racial and, and sex bean counting and this sort of quota system that, you know, needs to be filled when appointing judges, but you know sometimes it's just politics. Maybe the you know it, it, there is a political component to it. So I may not like it, but it may not be the end of the world. But what is really problematic and really undermines the Supreme Court and the notion of the rule of law is the ju- is is President Biden being obsessed with it and promising and confirming discrimination. Now, you know, in the case of Ronald Reagan, as uh, Professor Jonathan Turley has noted, he said he wanted to appoint a woman, but they considered other choices. So if Biden had said, look, you know, boy, I'd like to make history and appoint a black woman. But, you know, I'm going to consider, you know, there's all sorts of applicants I'm going to consider, but we'll see what happens. You know, that's 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 within the realm of reason at least what passes for reason here in Washington, D.C. But instead, you have this racialism that is objectionable. And in my view, it's pernicious. And the Senate should be, if he does act and confirm, and the process turns out that he only considered people based on race and sex, the Senate should say no. The Senate should say no. 
And generally speaking, the Senate should refuse to move forward a nominee who isn't committed to the Constitution as written and uh, who won't promise not to legislate from the bench. We don't need any more judicial activism. I mean, the Supreme Court, the left on the Supreme Court has politicized it terribly. Even some of the Republican appointees like Chief Justice Roberts, who's very nervous about the Supreme Court being politicized, makes political decisions because he's nervous about it. So it isn't just a Democrat thing. It can be a Republican thing as well. You know, one thing, uh, there was a story recently, I shouldn't say recently, I just read it a few hours before I came on. I think it was in Vox Magazine, V-O-X. And the writer went back and looked at the history of how Breyer got onto the court. And, and uh, Breyer got onto the court because he was, he was a lawyer who was well-known in the Senate because he had worked in the Senate. So the Republicans who were in influential positions in the Senate uh, knew him and were friendly with him. Friendly, you know, they worked, worked together. And... Um, so Orrin Hatch, who was head of the Judiciary Committee for the Republicans, he called Bill Clinton up and said, look, you should nominate, according to this story, Justice Breyer or Justice Ginsburg. And, you know, those 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 both of them eventually were nominated and confirmed with many, many Republican support of votes. And it highlights how uh, that how true that truism is, or I found to be a truism, that federal judges are often lawyers who know senators. The old saw is judges are lawyers who know politicians. <laughs> when you're at the federal level, uh, judges, uh, federal judges are uh, lawyers who know senators. And Breyer is a perfect example of that. Now, I, I reject that approach to judicial selection, um, especially since our Constitution as, is under assault as a result of appointees that come from that uh, insider background and uh, we need more justices in the mold of alito and thomas and less justices in the mode of Breyer and frankly chief justice roberts who was also uh, kind of an insider for um, uh, in terms of dc so we'll see what happens and this is what i ask you to do i want you to prepare to do the heavy lifting you need to be communicating with your senator or senators every step of the way about how you feel about how the confirmation process is going and how it should operate. Now, the uh, there are more than a few Republicans who would like you to believe that, well, the Senate, there's nothing they can do to stop a, Repu a, Senate, uh, uh, a, confirm a, a Supreme Court justice nominated by Biden from being confirmed by the Senate. Well, that's not true. It's simply not true. Uh, and I'll explain the rules to you generally. Uh, the Senate isn't 60-40, Democrat-Republican. It's not even 52-48, Democrat-Republican. It's 50-50. So as a result, the committees are split evenly. 11-11, I think it is, in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, typically for a nomination to move to the floor... Uh, the majority of those present must vote on it. And so if, it, if there's a tie vote, this, the, the nomination can't move to the floor. 
And just so you know, if the nomination can't move to the floor, there's really no way for them to consider it uh, without, and, and I'm just kind of boiling it down, without a 67 vote margin. They need 67 votes to move the nomination forward. Now, technically, they could overcome that rule through, you know, using the nuclear option, you know, the version of the option they wanted to use to shut the filibuster down, but that's unlikely to succeed. So my point is, if all Republicans on a Senate Judiciary Committee, which is currently led uh, by Lindsey Graham, at least on the Republican side, refuse to let the nominee go forward, uh, the nominee could be stopped. And as I said, there are many Republicans who probably don't want you to understand that or know that. But you need to hold them accountable. Now, Lindsey Graham has been notorious for voting for most of President Biden's judicial nominees. Did you know he's, I think, only opposed one or two, if, if that? Certainly on committee, I'm not aware of him opposing. Um, I think he's only opposed one on committee. Dozens of other judges, just he's voted through. Now, so Lindsey Graham is head of the Judiciary Committee, so it's worth talking to his office, whether or not you live in South Carolina. Uh, it's worth talking, obviously, to, to your members if they're on the Judiciary Committee, but you should let all your members know. And if your members are Democrats, if your senators are de Democrats, don't feel shy about communicating with them. Look, they, they uh, modulate their positions based on what they're hearing from their constituents. And don't you think that just because they may say something publicly, they're not saying something privately because they're getting flack from home. So the way it works is I stand with Chuck Schumer when they're on the floor, but when they're off the floor, they're saying, Chuck, what are you doing to me? Why are we proceeding this way? Is there a way we can get out of this? Let's shut this down. So that's the value of communicating with your elected representatives, no matter who they are, Democrat or Republican. And plus, it's a good civic thing to do. You know, you can't complain. About, I guess you can complain about Washington. Um, but it, I think it's important and useful to communicate with your elected representatives. I think it's just, it's just good citizenship. And you may think it's not fruitful. I'm telling you it is. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been doing this long enough to know they calls matter on the Hill. I, it, they matter so much that even if they're not being picked up, they know what's happening because th they kind of have a feel for the volume of calls, even if they're not getting them all, to all of them. So you've got to participate often in this process in communicating with your senators. So you've got to do the heavy lifting. And you should know that it's not a sure thing that whoever is nominated by Biden uh, gets confirmed. I can't imagine, for instance, just politically speaking, why Republicans would move forward any nominee before the November elections. But I guess that's a political position, isn't it? So I'm concerned as head of Judicial Watch about ensuring that nominees uh, are constitutionalists, uh, won't legislate from the bench, aren't politicians in robes. And I'm also concerned about the Senate not participating in a discriminatory process that has explicitly frozen out citizens of the United States of America from being considered based on their race and sex. Those are pretty simple principles. And I think, I've, you know, I understand that people have different judicial philosophies about how ju judges should decide. 
But aren't we all supposed to agree that you can't discriminate on the basis of sex and race? No, we aren't, because the left doesn't actually believe that. And that's being exposed here in this big fight. Now, what I think the Republicans ought not to do is they shouldn't do what the left did to people like Justice Kavanaugh, who was targeted with violence. They, they were trying to overthrow the Senate with violence and intimidation and harassment. They smeared him. They defamed him. They abused the powers of the Senate to target him and investigate him. They broke the rules of the Senate. They misused the FBI, in my view, to investigate him for no good reason. All to try to derail him. And frankly, I, th- I, I think we're still facing the, some of the negative rulings, at least from my perspective, that he, um, he, he's been on the wrong side of. More recently, supporting um, a mandate for poor healthcare workers to be forced to take an irreversible medical procedure i.e. vaccinations for COVID. I think, you know, that, that, that shook him. And he's been, I don't know, seemingly trying to re- rehabilitate himself with the people who tried to destroy him. I don't understand it. Well, either way, but that's not the way we should go. We should be principled in opposition, respectful of the rule of law. We shouldn't try to overthrow the Senate the way the left did. But we should say no to race discrimination, no to sex discrimination, no to CRT guiding the confirmation process, and no to politicized judicial decision making, which steals liberty, steals your right to self-govern. Because when judges act as politicians, they're stealing your God-given right to govern yourself through your elected representatives under our constitutional system. So none of this, oh, well, you know, we're going to... Give the, the president deserves a Supreme Court nominee because just, he's just because he's the president. No, the senators have an independent obligation, in my view, to protect the Constitution from the predations of the judicial activists that would undermine it. So there you go. I talked a little bit more about this. Uh, by the way, if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to go watch it. I was on uh, this uh, podcast uh, YouTube show uh, with Tim Poole. It's called Timcast, and it was a more casual setting. And we talked for two hours about all sorts of things. And I encourage you uh, to go watch it on our channel or on his channel, Timcast, uh, on YouTube. And I talked about this, and and I was glad to be able to do it there because, like I said, you know, it's important we remind people, and that's a different audience than the audience that probably watches me uh, and Judicial Watch here. Uh, it's probably younger and, you know, not as far, not, not as conservative as the typical, uh, as, as the audience on this channel or, or this platform that watches Judicial Watch and supports Judicial Watch. But we, we have to remind people, yes, communicate with your senators. This is how judges should rule. It's not appropriate for presidents to pick judges based on race and sex. So basic principles, we should just be constantly repeating and reiterating over the next few months because our constitution as always is at stake so i will follow that up though with uh some good news at a supreme court which is why the left is so crazed about the supreme court remember this pick is just the beginning of an effort to pack the supreme court the left has it backed away 
from its desire to pack the Supreme Court. What does that mean? Packing the Supreme Court means adding new members to the court in addition to the nine. So instead of nine, they would make it 13 or some number like that, which, of course, would destroy the Supreme Court as a legitimate institution or further destroy it because in some ways it's undermined its own its own credibility by um, making it completely political because once you expand the supreme court to get your people on what happens is the next party comes in expands the supreme court to negate that and by the end of the day you've got 400 people on the supreme court acting like a legislature and the judicial function of the court is smashed so it's a fundamental attack, and that means it's the end of our constitutional republic, practically speaking. So I don't want the country to be destroyed. I don't know about you. Do you? I mean, the left is just attacking all of our institutions. Forgive me for getting a little distracted, but this is an example of it. In, the, um, in, in colleges and universities, they have race-based admissions, that unfortunately the Supreme Court has kind of condoned or ratified over the years, they've got to go. And the court seems to recognize that because they agreed to take up two challenges to race-based admissions in the University of North Carolina and Harvard. And this is what I said to, uh, in response, because we filed amicus briefs encouraging the court, amicus briefs or amici briefs, because we filed it filed the briefs with our friends at the Allied Educational Foundation. So the plural of amicus is amici. So there are amici briefs. It is time once and for all for the Supreme Court to put an end to court-sanctioned racial discrimination in college admissions, both in public and private schools. The Supreme Court should recognize that its own past decisions legitimizing racial discrimination in school admissions were wrongly decided and should reverse them. Discrimination on the basis of race is becoming pandemic in all areas of society. It must be curtailed as the Constitution requires. The Supreme Court needs to stop short this pernicious and building ra racialism. I'm sure you agree with that. So what's happening in North Carolina, University of North Carolina and Harvard is they basically give you a plus factor if you're a certain race. I think I saw the statistic in Harvard that um, a high achieving Asian student would have to have like a grade of, uh, you know, could not possibly get into a, a minority student given, quote, a plus factor just looking at the academics and it's all based on race and it's all banned by the constitution and federal civil rights law but the supreme court carved out in a series of decisions exceptions to uh, the federal bans on discrimination and it shows you how you know how dishonest and the courts are and the left are when it comes to combating discrimination they don't believe it they don't believe it. They don't believe that discrimination against certain types of people is wrong. I mean, it's one thing to say, look, on the basis of my race, I was denied access because of my race. And then the court coming in and say, you know what? You're right. You're in. What they're saying is it's the CRT approach. 
I know it wasn't called CRT back then, but it's the approach that it's because the numbers are low and institutions are racist, numbers of minorities allegedly are low, and institutions are inherently racist, there has to be special benefits that give people uh, a plus factor because of their race. And it's anathema to the Constitution, equal protection of the law. I mean, federal tax dollars are being used to do this. So this has been a long battle. You know, the lower, one of the lower courts who upheld Harvard's race-based affirmative action program. I shouldn't call it um, affirmative action because it's, you know, that phrase is designed to disguise its, that it's quotas. That's the practical effect of the so-called affirmative action programs. So it's a big deal because this is an opportunity for the court if there is a conservative majority to be had there. And the left likes to call it a conservative majority. I call it a constitutional majority to apply the law has written, which bans racial discrimination in college admissions. This is what we asked. We asked the court to no longer allow universities to defend race-based admission programs by relying on schools' purported educational needs for increased diversity. So they think a school, this is the argument they're saying, well, they think a school is better because it has more races, and that justifies discrimination on the basis of race to make that happen. Well, does that sound reasonable to you? It doesn't to me. And certainly, it may be a reasoned reason if there were no laws against racial discrimination, but there are. So either you support them or you don't. The university's use of race in its undergraduate admission process violates the first, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. UNC's admissions process specifically incorporated impermissible racial considerations violating the Equal Protection Clause. What's the Equal Protection Clause? What it means is that everyone deserves equal protection, no matter their race. Some people aren't more protected than others. And the left left is rejecting that constitutional approach. And it's been brought by an excellent group called Students for Fair Admissions, which is that they've been if they've been pursuing both cases, so I encourage you to look them up. And I don't know if you can support them directly or not, but I'm sure you can if you'd like to. So great, some great news, because now on the docket is whether or not we'll continue this, this awful racialism that's been endorsed by the court. And, and, and if you, those of you who are lawyers or familiar with civil rights law, you know, and I'll warn you, I'm not a lawyer, that uh, the play, they've been all over the place, the Supreme Court, on these issues. But most importantly, they've kind of let this racialism and discrimination continue despite the plain language of the law. As we highlighted, prior equal protection rulings upholding racial classifications have not withstood the test of time. 
rulings by this court allowing individuals to be treated differently based on race under the Equal Protection Clause have been wrongfully decided. And there are three cases in that regard, and they account for some of the most famous missteps in this court's jurisprudence. These rulings show the troubling outcomes that spring from judicially created exceptions to the Equal Protection Clause's strict prohibition against racial classification. To remedy this constitutional failing, we said that the court should clean those rulings out. Race-based admission programs for higher education have been the subject of this court's attention in five major cases and in 26 separate opinions in the last 43 years. Can you imagine? These rulings have generated numerous opinions, pluralities, concurrences, and dissents, many of which conflict in fundamental and and significant ways. These decisions achieve little consensus regarding whether race-based admission programs can be implemented without violating equal protection principles and have not provided a workable construct for the lower courts and school officials in reviewing and implementing race-based admissions programs. The court should grant, and that, which they have, we're asking this, this round of amicus, amicus briefs was designed to get the court to take the cases up. The court should reconsider whether race-based admissions programs should ever be permitted and not simply try to try again to adjust the strict scrutiny standard, which means that there's a heightened level of scrutiny for uh, violations of the law related, uh, you know, basically discrimination on the basis of race in a way that permits such programs. So in other words, they change the rules to allow discrimination on the basis of race. Now, although the court has been clear that you can't discriminate on the basis of race in employment. (laughs) So the irony of President Biden Promising to discriminate on the basis of race and picking an, uh, in picking a judicial nominee is, you know, doubly problematic. In addition to really unfairly causing that nominee's qualifications to be questioned. I mean, the worst outcome is that he finds someone that I wouldn't necessarily support because of her judicial philosophy, but who otherwise would be a, a perfectly reasonable nominee if he had done a thorough, you know, he looked at 10 people and they were all races and sexes and backgrounds. And he said, you know, why? but boy, this is the best nominee. But now he's tainted the potential nominee, if it is a black female, with this discriminatory process that he seemingly is going to put in place. And, you know, I don't know if she'll be in, if assuming it is a she, or if the person will be in soon enough to rule on these cases. I don't think so. This is the problem when you mess with the courts and politicize them and engage in this, in this racialism. It's, it's a... It's terrible for our country. It's really terrible. It could tear the country apart. We could lose the country over this. So, back to COVID, right? Back to COVID. Well, Judicial Watch has been front and center in investigating the origins of COVID, exposing the truth about it, 
specifically the gainsmanship by Fauci and his lieutenants in hiding their concerns about COVID being um, originating from a lab in Wuhan that was supported by them. In addition to that, um, just, you know, the whole communications concerning China generally, because in China's secrecy, whether or not they was a naturally occurring virus or something that came out of a lab, uh, put us back in our ability to figure out how to deal with it, certainly early on. And, uh, and then we heard that there were reports that our diplomats, and this was from earlier this year, were being asked to or required to take anal swabs to test for COVID. Of course, there was little to no follow-up as to what the heck was going on there. Why would that obviously embarrassing and invasive testing process be allowed of our diplomats? So Judicial Watch um, asked for, didn't get the information because the State Department was hiding material from us in violation of law. So we sued. And we got around to documents a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, I forget now, that confirmed there were concerns about what was going on and it looked like it was happening. Well, we got a new set of documents that confirmed beyond a shadow of doubt it was happening because someone says it happened to me, or at least third hand or second hand. As our headline says, records confirm Chinese government anal swab COVID testing of US diplomatic personnel. It was only 11 pages, just a few emails that confirm it. In January 22nd, 2021, a general services officer with the State Department, his name is redacted, he's in Shenyang, sent an email with the subject, new testing method. So a colleague from blank telling our group redacted, I don't know what the name of the group is, that he was given an anal COVID swab at his apartment. Just a heads up, as I'm sure it is going to blow up soon. If you aren't already dealing with it, employee's name is, the name is redacted, and I don't want to know his name. Just getting ahead before the word of mouth starts spreading. Someone responds, that official's name is redacted. In what city did this occur? And what number test? And did he say if they gave any notice beforehand, the test would be conducted in this manner? And was he presented with the options? The official responds, it was done in Beijing. He is in his apartment as part of the plus seven, from my understanding, which I interpret to mean some quarantine, seven-day quarantine. No notice or options, as I can tell. He had to do, he had to do both the nose and anal swab. There you go. It happened. So it looks like almost concurrently with that, if not in response to that email, because it was the same date at the same time, time uh, a management officer in the U.S. consulate in Shenyang again writes: uh, "No anal swabs for diplomats." Foreign air service, for foreign area office is telling the embassy, and I think the FAO is foreign area office. That's the Chinese liaisons that the embassy that it was a mistake to ask for anal swabs and that it didn't apply to diplomats to be determined how blank will play it. But for now, we'll have to tell people they don't have to do it. Reportedly, you do it yourself in private, so not as bad as I had envisioned. 
Oh, that other email makes it look like it was not done to yourself. You, it was done by a third party. I don't know. Either way, would you want to be forced to do that by the Chinese communists? So, uh, so you would think everything is calm, right? And it kept on happening. So later in the month, there are more emails that show that um, things still haven't been fixed. They're still asking for the anal swabs. On January 27, five days later, I have asked Blank to contact Blank immediately regarding the anal swab and environmental testing. He's calling them now. Please contact Blank. Please contact the Blank. Blank turned off the anal swab and indicated that we are fine with oral or nasal swab. He also turned off inside the apartment environmental testing as I protested both of these items. So they were fighting this for the next several days. But then listen to this. Five months later, almost, on May 5th, 2021, an official writes to um, the State Department in Beijing, Beijing VIP visits with the subject line, Beijing PCS for arrival and quarantine questions. Hi, I'm planning to arrive in country in early August. What do we need to be aware of for these planning purposes? For planning purposes, are, there, are we able to fly into Beijing directly? Someone mentioned that we have to fly into another city. We currently have reservations for Beijing, so we wanted to be checked before having a ticket issue. This is the key part. We've been hearing, from a, we've been hearing a lot of horror stories about the quarantine in China. Unfortunately, the monthly newcomers call blank and the calls aren't recorded. So we can't even hear the answers to others' questions via recording of the calls. So I guess there's a process for, you know, getting reports and following up on them when they get calls from their diplomatic colleagues in China at the State Department. So I hope you don't mind us asking our questions to you directly. We've been talking with a number of blank in China or those that recently left. We've heard a lot of horror stories about the quarantine upon arrival. We've heard about older children being separated from families during the quarantine, anal swab testing, and real violations of diplomatic norms. Others have reported they were crammed in rooms with inadequate bedding, two twin beds for a family of four, and subpar conditions bordering on detention center level living. It seems like diplomats and their families are not being treated according to acceptable norms. The escalation of the PRC's violations of diplomatic protection seems particularly concerning. Whoa, right? So the anal swab issue evidently is just the tip of the iceberg. These poor living conditions, family separation, And you can tell from this email that this person, you know, he wasn't, he didn't fall just off the turnip truck. It's obviously, you know, senior official who knows what he's talking about and they've done the research. So someone responds with, quote, talking points, which are completely non-responsive. Oh, there's supposed to be no anal testing and you can object. Well, obviously there's a problem there. And certainly doesn't deny any of the allegations that look to me uh, that were in the email. So it's like, you know, um, the response is, and I'm not going to bore you with the response of the government. You can read it online. But it reminded me of the Biden administration saying, 
uh, as a result of their, you know, that you had all this, this crisis as a result of the uh, precedent surrender in Afghanistan. And uh, he said, oh, well, it was a success. We got all these people out. Well, at what cost? And what about the people who were killed or left behind? And those 13 servicemen. I mean, so our diplomats are being abused by the People's Republic of China. And the response from the Biden administration is to pretend it's really not happening while knowing it's happening behind the scenes. And again, this is Judicial Watch doing it. Where are the rest of the media? Where's Congress and everyone else? We're about to have the Olympics in Beijing. What's going on there? You would think it's relevant, wouldn't you? These documents confirm, as I say in our release, abuse of U.S. diplomatic personnel by the Chinese government. The Biden administration doesn't seem to have done much about this abuse of anal swab testing and other disrespect of our diplomatic personnel. Oh, wait, he did do something. They did do something. They, other, they pretended it didn't happen and tried to cover it up. I mean, when I say we got documents, it means that we asked for them, they broke the law to try to hide them for us, and we had to go to federal court to get them. So there was a lawless cover-up. And, you know, maybe I don't emphasize this enough. When we sue in court and get documents, that's a scandal. Because it means that these are documents that should have been produced to us in the ordinary course without us having to go to federal law, sue them in federal court for breaking the law on transparency. So once again, you name the topic, January 6th, immigration, COVID, Fauci, election integrity, you name it, Judicial Watch is front and center, standing in the gap, conducting the basic oversight that Congress refuses to do, the media doesn't want to do, and government obviously doesn't want done at all. And we do it with your support. And I encourage you to keep on keeping on that with that support. And uh, I'll be here next week because there's a lot more coming down the pike. So you'll want to tune in next week with another Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law. Thank you.